You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Let's talk about how you can treat allergies of the eyes and nose. A quick recap. When we talk about allergies of the eyes and nose, we're talking about allergic rhinitis and allergic conjunctivitis. These are two forms of allergic responses that can be caused by things such as environmental allergies like pollen and grass, dust mites, and pets. We have a deep dive on how to recognize if you have allergies of the eyes and nose and how they're diagnosed, so check out episode 34 because today we're talking about how we treat these, some natural methods and which medications to look for or to get prescribed by your doctor. I finally went to the doctor about my seasonal allergies and I can tell you that I can finally enjoy the blooming flowers of springtime instead of scouring at them from making my nose run and my eyes itch. So if you want to join me in finding ways to manage your allergies of the eyes and nose, this episode is for you. your diagnosis and you've ruled out other possible causes of these symptoms, what are treatments for allergies of the eyes and nose? Okay, so for allergic rhinitis and conjunctivitis, there are three main categories of treatment. These three treatment pathways include allergen avoidance, drug therapy, and then immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is such a large topic that we really want to dedicate an episode to that. So this episode is really just, you know, the symptoms, the diagnosis, and then avoidance measures, and also the drug therapy that we can use. And then immunotherapy we'll we'll cover in the next episode. Fabulous. So let's start with avoidance. What kind of steps can people take to limit their exposure to allergic triggers? So again, this is why allergen testing is so important because once we know what someone's allergic to, it's all about reducing exposure to that allergen. So for example, people with dust mite allergies can use physical barriers like mattress or pillow encasements that prevent the dust mites from burrowing into the mattress or the pillow and pooping inside the mattress or pillow. Because again, remember that with dust mites, we're allergic to the feces and not the actual dust mite itself. And then also with dust mite allergies, we recommend washing your sheets in hot water at least once a week to really get rid of those allergens. Dehumidifiers can also be helpful. As I mentioned, that dust mites live off of the humidity in the air. So the recommendation for humidity is that it should be kept 50% or below in the home. For people with allergies to their pets, I usually recommend that number Number one, that they definitely not allow the pet into the bedroom because that really needs to be the safe space in our home. That's really technically where we spend most of our time when we're at home because we're supposed to get seven to eight hours of sleep at night, ideally. And so if the bedroom is not a safe space, then your body is inhaling all those allergens and you're going to feel sicker if you allow your pet into your room. So that's the first thing that I start with. In addition, for pet 
allergies, air purifiers really do help with pet dander. And then the other recommendation, which isn't always good for your pet, is that washing your pet often, again, at least once a week, could help reduce the amount of dander. Now, that really depends on the kind of cat or dog you have and see if that's even good for them. And then unfortunately, if all of that doesn't work, especially with pet allergies, then sometimes we may need to remove the pet from the home, especially in situations where the pet is causing severe asthma symptoms. Ideally, we can also try allergy immunotherapy, which we'll get to again in the next episode. And that's been shown to help with pet allergies, actually with multiple allergens. So lastly, with both dust mite and pet allergies, allergies, less carpeting is the best. I totally get what you're saying because a lot of this is what we did when I was a kid. Uh, We had a dog and she wasn't allowed upstairs because that was the only part of the house with carpeting. And I did have allergic issues with her. And when she wasn't upstairs, I was okay. Now I actually have a dog and he is quote unquote hypoallergenic. And I would love to just jump into that topic really quickly because it is something that's very controversial, the term hypoallergenic pet and I can tell you that my dog is not hypoallergenic and that I do not believe in that term because I still get allergic symptoms from him. Can you just tell us or talk a little bit about hypoallergenic pets? There isn't technically an allergy-free dog or cat But some people just tend to react to certain species more than others. So I'm allergic to cats and I know that certain cats are really bad for me while others are better. So I wish we had a test to look at different species of cats and dogs, but we really don't. And genetic modification of animals doesn't always work. There will still be dander. So I always tell people that if you know you have an allergy, try and babysit the type of animal you want to get for at least two to four weeks before you commit to it. Because once you fall in love with the animal, it's really hard to get rid of it. And we usually have to then put the person on multiple medications and then immunotherapy just to make them feel comfortable, which is not ideal. We didn't babysit a dog for two to four weeks, but we definitely rubbed our faces in a lot of dogs to find the perfect breed. So we were a bit creepy, but that's how we did it. And I totally agree with that. Thank you for taking that time to just clarify the term hypoallergenic cat or dog. What about pollens and grasses? How can someone avoid those or at least minimize their allergic symptoms? So for pollen allergy, patients should really try to avoid outdoor activities on days where the pollen count is extremely high. And you can try to close your windows of your car or home during high pollen count days. And especially early in the morning, the pollen counts are also noted to be higher. And also showering before going to bed to wash allergens from the hair and skin is a good idea for any allergen. It also reduces the amount of allergen that's transferred to the bedding. So those are all things that you can do for pollen allergies. And avoidance measures, you know, can really be helpful. And for patients that have mild symptoms, that can be enough. It's really great if you can just avoid and then you're okay. But if avoiding doesn't work, what kind of medications can patients look into? Okay, so starting with allergic rhinitis, there are a number of options. Nasal saline washes are considered a natural way to mechanically wash away the allergens that stick to the inside of the nose. I tell people it's like brushing your teeth. You are removing the sugars on your teeth so that you don't get damaged by the sugars. And in the same way, you can remove Remove the allergens 
that sit in your nose by washing them away with a saline solution so that you don't get that inflammation inside of your nose that causes that irritation and runny nose. Are you talking about a neti pot? Yep. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And that's commonly what it's known as. And the neti pot actually is technically a ceramic pot that was used in India. So that's really where it all originated from. Now there are squeeze bottles and other devices that are used in a similar way where you put the saline wash in there and it helps to clean out the nose and the nasal passages. Oh, I wish I knew about the squeeze bottles. (laughs) I used a neti pot for a while and honestly, I was just too lazy and found it annoying. So I stopped. Yeah. I mean, it's not for everyone. And also one thing that's super important to remember is that whatever system you're using, you have to keep it extra clean. Even though it's a safe way, it can get unsafe because there are reports of people allowing mold to grow inside of the containers that they're using. When that mold grows into the nasal cavities and then gets into the sinuses, it can cause severe infection. So although it's a natural therapy, it can also be dangerous. That's really gross. Yeah. I mean, you just have to take care of it just like a baby's bottle. Just be extra careful with cleaning it. And every system comes with its instructions on how to clean. So I always just tell patients to look at the insert and make sure that they're following the cleaning instructions for that particular system. So for patients that don't respond to simple avoidance or the saline rinses, then we turn to oral antihistamines, which I know our listeners are most likely familiar with. So antihistamines block the histamine reaction that is causing all of that inflammation and irritation. And some of these medications, just to mention them, include loratadine or claritin, fexofen or Allegra, Cetirizine or Zyrtec. And these are just some of the names. And these antihistamines in particular are called second generation antihistamines because they don't cause as much sleepiness compared to the older or first generation antihistamines like diphenhydramine, more commonly known as Benadryl, because as we know, Benadryl causes a lot of drowsiness. In general, with all antihistamines, they have about 15 to 20 minutes before they actually start taking an effect. So I recommend that people take them before going to a space that they know will cause their allergies. For example, if you're going to the park and it's in the middle of tree season and you're allergic, it's better to take an antihistamine before you start sneezing rather than after. Since we're talking specifically about allergic rhinitis, what about nose sprays? I know that I was prescribed one this year and I found it super helpful. And you mentioned Afrin earlier. So I'd love to know more about the different kinds and whether you can get addicted to the one that my doctor prescribed me? (laughs) Yeah, so there are a lot of nasal sprays out there and people can definitely get confused by them. So I think the easiest way is to really split them up by categories. So there are intranasal antihistamines, there's intranasal decongestants, and then there's intranasal steroids. I'd spoken about the decongestant nasal spray, which is the Afrin or the oxymetalazoline. And these medications, like I said, are over the counter, but again, not very safe. They are recommended by doctors in very specific cases, but for very short time. It's not really recommended by allergists for allergies. They're not a treatment that we generally use for allergies, but they're given if you have severe congestion, maybe for a procedure that the ear knows 
nose and throat doctors doing, or they rec- might recommend them before a long flight for people that get really bad ear pain or ear aches during a long flight. So again, not really a medication that we use for allergies. Why would someone who wasn't prescribed Afrin decide to take it? Like if you were just at the pharmacy and or the Walgreens and you just say, oh, that looks good. I want that. Well, that's exactly the problem. It is over the counter. And oftentimes the packaging will have advertisements for congestion and people pick it up because they are congested. And that's one of the problems with over-the-counter medications. And that's why it is helpful that places like Walgreens and CVS have pharmacists where you can ask them questions. So if you're ever worried that you're picking up a medication that you don't actually know, it's always good to check in with the pharmacist. So with Afrin, the reason that people in a sense get addicted to it is because it does work very quickly. But again, it's because it constricts the tissues in the blood vessels, which is dangerous if used for too long. So what about prescribed nasal sprays? Right. So we'll talk about the other categories that I mentioned. So let's start with the intranasal antihistamine sprays. So those are all still prescription medications and you cannot get them over the counter, at least in America. You might be able to get them over the counter in Europe, I'm not sure, or other parts of the world. But here in America, they are still prescription and they block the histamine reaction in the nose. Two examples are azelastine or olopatidine. That's the generic name for them. Because these are locally acting antihistamines, they tend to have less side effects than the oral versions of the antihistamine. And the only thing that people consistently complain about with these sprays is really the bitter taste that they get. And that's because any medication that goes into your nose or in fact in your eyes will drip down to the back of your throat. So most people with this particular medication will taste aftertaste. And with antihistamines, unfortunately, they're very bitter. So when you take nasal sprays, you're just targeting the nose and other allergic symptoms, say in the eyes, won't be impacted. Well, they do work locally in the nose, but really the nose is where everything starts. So if we can control your nasal symptoms, we'll actually improve your eye symptoms too. So a lot of studies show that once your nasal symptoms get better, your eye symptoms also get better. Oh, that's good to know. So sometimes if you have allergies of the eyes and nose, just a nasal spray could potentially be all you need to have that whole part of your face feel a little bit better. Absolutely. Yeah. The next category of medications is the nasal steroid sprays, which are things that most people have heard about, especially in the allergy world, like Flonase, Nasonex, Rhinocort. These are some of the trade names, but they're all nasal steroid sprays. So steroids, remember, are anti-inflammatories. And even though some people get nervous about using them, they, in this instance, they're really just working locally in the nose. So the side effect profile is pretty minimal. They can increase your risk of nosebleeds. If you start having nosebleeds when you're using the nasal steroid sprays, then we really need to see how you're using the nasal spray because they can dry out the nose. And if you're pointing it towards the middle of the nose, that's where the septum is and the septum is sensitive. And so that's what leads to the bleeding. So really we want to point the nasal sprays more laterally or away from the middle of the nose. And we'll definitely put a video up about exactly how to use the nasal sprays so that you don't have that side effect. The other thing that we want to know about the side effects is that nasal steroids can increase our chance of glaucoma and cataracts in the eyes, but that's really over long-term use or if you have a family history of either condition or if you personally have a history of those 
conditions, it's always something important that I ask before I put someone on a nasal steroid spray. And if there's any concerns, I always send them again to the eye doctor to make sure that it's okay for a patient to use a nasal steroid spray. But in general, I personally use nasal steroid sprays and they are safe and very effective and they can start working in as little as 30 minutes. But in reality, because it's uh, anti-inflammatory and it's reducing the inflammation in your nose, you have to remember that swelling doesn't go down that quickly. If you have pretty severe symptoms, you have to give it time to really work to the point where you're going to notice that it's working. So I usually want patients to use a nasal steroid spray for at least a month before giving up on it. Because they're so effective and I know that they're going to work, I really want the patient to give it a good try. There is also a combo med, which is kind of cool, but not always covered by insurance, where they've combined the nasal steroid and the nasal antihistamine spray into one spray. So they have both ingredients that you can use. And so that's nice. But in general, I actually use the nasal antihistamine and the nasal steroid sprays together. So if the person can't get that combined medication, I will prescribe each nasal spray separately and have the patient use one of the sprays in the morning and then the other one at night or use each one in the morning and at night. It just depends on how the patient wants to do it. But using them both together can be really effective. How long should someone use a nasal spray? Can they use them all year long or is that a sign that they might need another form of treatment? So nasal sprays can technically be used all year round, but again, you know, we talked about the side effects and in general, if people can't come off of their nasal sprays, then I do suggest thinking about other forms of treatment like immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is a way to slowly come off of medications for your allergies. Is that all there is for treating allergic rhinitis? So there's one more medication. There's also Montelukast, which is a generic name for Singulair. And this medication we've also talked about when we've talked about asthma, but it can also be used for allergic rhinitis. Yeah, and it blocks the allergic pathway in a different way. When I hear Montelukast, I always think of the side effects of depression and suicide. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yes. So there is a risk of what we call neuropsychiatric events, which means that some people can experience serious behavior and mood-related changes, including suicide thoughts or actions with Montelukast. But, you know, we have to remember that this is still something that's rare, but something that we need to monitor for. But because of these side effects, we really reserve this medication for people who aren't responding to the other medications, especially if we're just using it for allergic rhinitis alone. We don't want to start with Montelukast necessarily, but use it as a second, third line medication. For people with combination asthma, allergic rhinitis, I think we do tend to use Montelukast more often because it helps with both conditions. But anyone with a psychiatric history, we have to be a little bit more careful when we're using Montelukast. Thank you. Yeah. And that's a good reminder that it is important to talk to your doctor about the side effects and the other things that could impact how that drug impacts you. What about for allergic conjunctivitis? How do you usually start to treat your patients? Well, again, after allergen avoidance, uh, encouraging basic eye care is super important. So people should avoid rubbing their eyes. As I mentioned before, this can lead to more of that itch 
inflammation reaction. The more we touch them and rub them, the more the eyes get itchy and red and irritated. It may also be helpful to avoid contact lens use during symptom flare-ups as sometimes allergens can stick to the surface of the contacts. And in addition, glasses can serve as a shield to protect the eyes from allergens. So ideally, you could wear some type of goggle type glasses that really cover the front and side of the eyes. But I don't think people are going to do that in everyday life. But I do really recommend that for my bike riders, especially during pollen season. For very mild symptoms, applying cold compresses to the eyelids can be helpful for itching. Just like with allergies of the nose, using artificial tears or saline solution that's made for the eyes can flush out the allergens in the eyes and can also help with allergies of the eyes. And another little tip is that storing your artificial tears or any of your eye drops in the fridge can be really soothing for your eyes if your eyes are itchy and irritated. When you say artificial tears, are those just over-the-counter eye drops that you can buy? And if so, what should someone look for when they are buying them? Yes, they are over-the-counter. And with artificial tears, you really want to make sure that there's not other ingredients in the eye drops besides it's just the saline or the artificial tears because usually the other ingredients that are put into the eye drops will be some of those medications that constrict the blood vessels to get rid of the redness in the eyes. And using those frequently, just like with Afrin for the nose, is not healthy for the eyes because we don't want to constrict the blood vessels for too long because that's how we get oxygen to our eyes. In the same way that it can affect the nose, it can affect the eyes because the body will overdilate the blood vessels because it doesn't understand why the eyes aren't getting enough oxygen. Can you also get addicted to eye drops. I'm asking this because I actually know someone who always uses eye drops. You're not really addicted because an addiction is really when the brain can't stop using them because of a chemical reaction. So it's not really a true addiction, but some people just really get used to the way their eyes look with some of those decongestants and they don't want their eyes to be red. So they can't stop using them because of that. Also, lubricating eye drops, if you're just using simple lubricating eye drops, they just feel good. So there's nothing wrong with using a lubricating eye drop frequently, as long as it doesn't have any of those other negative ingredients. Okay. I mean, I'm never going to use eye drops because it like grosses me out completely. Anything near the eye just like makes me squirm. Now, what if these milder forms of treatment aren't enough for the eyes? Yeah, so if all of this doesn't work, we can use a topical antihistamine eye drop for the eyes. There are several ones that are over the counter, and then there's other ones that are only prescription. They're all essentially antihistamines, and they help to block the histamine reaction in the eyes. Something to remember is that if you use them before you have symptoms, that's always best. If you wait until your eyes are already really irritated, then the medication just won't work as well. Are these something then that you would use when you know your allergens are going to pop up, like just before seasonal allergies start, or maybe you're going to a friend's house who just happens to have a cat? Yep, exactly. That's what I mean. So it's really best to use these eye drops before your symptoms appear 
better as a preventative treatment because once you start having the symptoms, they just don't work as effectively. That's really good to know. So if you know it's going to happen, then you can start already. For both allergic rhinitis and conjunctivitis, I'm curious, is there a limit to how long you should take antihistamines and is it possible to build up a tolerance to them? So there's not really a limit to taking antihistamines because the side effects are essentially minimal, but I believe that for any medication, we should always try to come off of them when it's not necessary. So for allergies in particular, when it's not your season, I think it's really important to try to come off of them. Obviously, if you have all year round allergens, that's harder, but I think less is more, obviously, with medication. So there's no data to show that you can develop a tolerance to antihistamines that I know of. Okay, that's good to know. I just know people who take it year long, and I was curious. Going back to allergic conjunctivitis quickly, are there any medications that would be used for it? Yeah, another type of eye drop we can use is a mast cell stabilizer, which you, as you remember, the mast cell is one of cells in the body that releases histamine. And what the eye drops do is essentially they prevent the release of histamine from mast cells. And that medication is called chromalin. So this can be beneficial in patients with allergies that maybe don't tolerate the antihistamine eye drops. And they're typically effective when started two to four weeks before a known exposure. They're kind of like second line to antihistamine antihistamine eye drops. So they don't work as well as the antihistamine eye drops. How long would someone use chromalin and are there any side effects? They can use this eye drop all year round. The side effects are minimal. Sometimes it can dry the eyes out. And as with any other medication, some people can be sensitive and have an irritation to the medication. But other than that, there aren't too many other side effects. Lastly, I want to mention that for patients who have symptoms that are non-responsive to all of these therapies or with more intensive symptoms, we sometimes do use steroid eye drops, although these are generally something that I prescribe with an ophthalmologist or an eye doctor because we always want the person to have a full eye exam because any type of steroid can cause side effects and especially steroids used in the eyes can increase your risk of glaucoma and cataracts and also cause an increase in pressure in the eyes very quickly. So this is definitely not first-line therapy, but when things have gotten really bad, we have to turn to steroid eye drops. Another important point to mention before I forget is that patients need to remember that if they're using artificial tears, which again is, you know, something that they can use multiple times a day, it's important to space the drops out that have other medications in them. Basically, you don't want to use your antihistamine eye drop and then right after use artificial tears because essentially you're going to be rinsing the medication out. So it's just important to have some space in between. And I would say, you know, you can discuss with your doctor, but I usually say 15 to 20 minutes in between. Oh, that's good to know because I feel like you would just make it one regime. So I drop, I drop, I drop, I drop, but then basically you're just washing that out. Well, it's great to know that there are a lot of really good options for people with allergic conjunctivitis. Are there any medications that you would recommend for patients that suffer from both allergic conjunctivitis and allergic rhinitis? Yeah. So, you know, oral antihistamines like Allegra's or Tecmenadryl, those kind of things have 
have been shown to be beneficial for both types of conditions. And also intranasal steroids like Flonase, but there's so many more in that category. And intranasal steroids have also been shown to be beneficial for allergic rhinitis and conjunctivitis, and they help with both. Yeah, I started that this year, an intranasal steroid, and it really, I have allergies of the nose and the eyes, and I could see that my eyes were also positively impacted once I started using it. And it's great to know that there are treatments that will impact both because if you can reduce the amount of medications you take, it's always a good thing. Yep. That's the goal. Less is always more, especially with medications. I think we've basically covered everything except for immunotherapy. And that's a big topic. And I think that we want to really cover it well. So we're going to give it its own episode. As always, if people have any questions about anything we've discussed, we're here to answer any and all questions. And before we go, we want to thank Dr. Greg Delapena for helping us research and fact check this episode. Yep, he was a big help. So thank you. All right, that's it for now. Allergies of the eyes and nose. If you have any questions like Dr. G said, hit us up on Instagram and stay tuned because immunotherapy is going to be coming at you very soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.